Amen. Good morning to you, Mark chapter 15 this morning. And as we come to Mark chapter 15, it is about 5 o'clock in the morning of the day of the crucifixion, which would take place around 9 o'clock in the morning. So it's literally about four hours away. We'll be about four hours or so of study to get there. We won't try to do all of that this morning. We'll break that up just a little bit. Um, maybe I'll keep a clock off to the side so we can do it in real time and you can just kind of see what's I'm just teasing. But anyway, it's that morning, the night before, Jesus is in the garden. He is praying in Gethsemane before the arresting crowd comes to take him, the crowd that was sent by the religious leaders and by, uh, led by Judas Iscariot himself. And they took him before those nighttime religious trials, those mock of uh, trials as they were, before Annas in John's Gospel, and we saw last week before Caiaphas, those trials that were illegal trials. And then this morning, of course, he'll stand before Pontius Pilate. Even if you haven't gone to church many times in your life, you probably know the name Pontius Pilate. He was the governor over that region sent there by Rome to rule for Rome. Now in John's Gospel, we're told that as the religious leaders initially brought Jesus to Pilate, that Pilate wanted nothing to do with this case. He said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. In other words, why is this my problem? <laughs> Don't involve me. You take him and judge him according to your law. The problem is that they absolutely needed Pilate for this. You see, remember, Rome was occupying Israel at the time, and the Romans, some years before, had stripped the Jews of the right of capital punishment. Of course, that didn't stop them from initiating a potential stoning of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And it certainly didn't stop them from following through in stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 7 either. So what's the deal? Why not just go ahead and take care of this themselves? Why not just stone Jesus? Well, possibly for a couple of reasons. Number one, at this point, the crowd up until this point has been largely for Jesus. They're a pro-Jesus kind of crowd. He's immensely popular among the multitudes. And so if they can somehow succeed in getting Pilate to execute him instead, then maybe, potentially, they can distance themselves from this politically, so to speak. But secondly, and more important, the reason that they didn't stone Jesus and the reason that he went to the cross is because that's what the plan was. That was what the plan was from the foundations of the earth. That was always the plan that Jesus Christ would go to the cross. He predicted himself that he would go to the cross long before he went to the cross. John 12, he said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then John added to that, This he said, signifying by what death he would die. He said something similar in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. When he said, as the serpent was raised up on the pole in the wilderness, so must he be raised up or lifted up. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, was to die by being lifted up, not beaten down by a stoning. And so, by pursuing crucifixion, the religious leaders are once again unknowingly working as puppets in God's grand theater so to speak. They are fulfilling not only what Jesus said concerning how he would die, but what the Old Testament prophets had long said in terms of how he would die as well. 
It's no secret to most of you because I've said many times and pointed out many texts in which the Old Testament prophets predicted that Jesus would die by means of crucifixion hundreds of years before not only crucifixion was practiced in the world, but before it had even been invented. There's description, vivid description of crucifixion in the Old Testament. But not only that, you take Psalm 22 and Psalm 34, and they both declare that none of his bones would be broken, speaking of the Messiah. Now that is very unlikely to happen if Jesus would have died via stoning. He likely would have had bones broken. So why didn't the religious leaders stone him? I don't know, except that that's because God said that he wouldn't break his bones and that he would go to the cross. Things are going according to plan. They are unfolding exactly the way the scriptures declared that a sinless Messiah would die, not for his own sins, but for our sins, as was prophesied also. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus Christ took our place by going to the cross. It what it was no haphazard thing that happened. It was no unfortunate circumstance. It may have been a conspiracy, but if it was, it was planned by the eternal Godhead from all of eternity past. Who put him on that cross? You know, sometimes, especially as we look at chapter 14 and chapter 15 of Mark, we go, man, there are a lot of fallout, a lot of scapegoats here that we could blame this on. We could say Judas, you know, he was the one that betrayed him. We could say the disciples, they weren't exactly there for him. They all kind of bailed on him there. How about the religious leaders? They're the one that riles everyone up and ultimately, as we'll see this morning, turns the crowd against Jesus. Or what about Pontius Pilate, who we'll look at this morning as well, and the Roman government? Why didn't they step in? Why didn't Herod step in at some point when he had his opportunity to try and stop this from happening? Or we could take a big picture, take a step back, from a spiritual vantage point and say, who put him on that cross? You and I did. Because of our sins. Because of the sins of humanity, Jesus had to go to the cross to die for our sins. But really, when it's all said and done, the Father put him on that cross. He put himself on that cross. The Holy Spirit put him on that cross because that was always the plan. And the religious leaders are just going along for the ride. Indeed, they are aiding and abetting God's plan to crucify our Lord. But what about Pilate? How do we get Pilate to go along with this? Especially when you consider that this plot is a plot of the religious leaders, and Pilate is no fan of the religious leaders. He was suspicious of them, pretty much in general. And if they're going to bring someone to him that they want to be crucified, he's the kind of guy that would be immediately suspect that they would have a hidden agenda. The relations between the two parties weren't very good. In fact, they were so dicey at this point that that's part of the problem. You see, Pilate was on thin ice. He was accused by the religious leaders and the Jewish people of not being very sensitive to the traditions and the customs of the Jewish people and the religious leaders complained to Rome and so Pilate is now kind of stuck 
in between a rock and a hard place here as he needs to somehow deal with Jesus as Jesus is going to be brought to him and yet his conscience is on one side of the equation in terms of doing what's right and on the other side is him trying as best as he can to appease this frenzied mob. And let's take a look and see how it turns out. Verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. So notice in the morning they reconvened. They had already met before at nighttime, but as we pointed out last time, that was not legal according to the laws of the land, that they could meet at nighttime to convict someone of a capital crime. All trials had to be held during the day. So here they ceremoniously reconvene so that they can cast their votes, so to speak, so that they can keep up some kind of appearance of legality, so to speak, so that they would be able to deny any such assertion that they had done this in an illegal way. Notice also that it says that they bound Pilate, which seems to indicate that they had not bound him before. They had bound Jesus, sorry. Which seems to indicate that they had not bound him before. Well, why would they bound Jesus when they knew that Jesus was not an aggressive, he was not a dangerous person? The Sanhedrin knew that about Jesus Christ, and yet they bound him in sending him to Pilate anyway. And the reason is, is because even though they knew that Jesus wasn't dangerous, perhaps they wanted Pilate to think that he was dangerous. You can tell during this process that the religious leaders are manipulating what is going on here. You can tell by the question that Pilate asks Jesus in verse 2. It says, then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? But that was never the accusation that the religious leaders had against Jesus. They didn't haul him before Annas or before Caiaphas because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He had never said something like that, and they had never made that accusation against him, but that's what they told Pilate. You want to know why? Because if they had gone before Pilate and said, this guy heals people on the Sabbath. <laughs> Next case. <laughs> I mean, it just would have been interesting. Even if he had said, this guy claims to be God. Yawn. We Romans have hundreds of gods. What's the harm in having one more? That would not have got Pilate's attention. Okay, so they come in, and instead they say, this guy claims to be the king of the Jews. Now that had to get Pilate's attention, because potentially then he had to treat Jesus as a political threat against uh, Rome. And so that one he would take seriously. But Jesus, of course... He was the king of the Jews in the sense that he is the king of kings. But he certainly wasn't a king in the sense that he would be a threat to Pilate, as Pilate's going to discover real quickly. Not in a military or a political kind of sense. And that might be why, after Pilate asks that question, Jesus responds this way. End of verse 2, he answered and said to him, It is as you say. He doesn't really say yes. He doesn't really say no. He sort of says, you said it. It's kind of a mysterious, ambiguous kind of answer. You said it. So which one is it? Is he the king of the Jews or is he not? Did he say yes or did he say no? Well, I think it's kind of a, a yes and a no. Like I said, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. 
But he's not the kind of king that Pilate would be threatened by. He's not the kind of king or leader that Pilate was, or Herod was, or Caesar was. He's not that kind of king at all. He's the kind of king that actually leaves his throne, come down from heaven to break into time, to break into humanity's time, so that he could die upon the cross and dispense grace and love to people that otherwise don't deserve it. He's the kind of king that rather than just staying before angels, always singing his praises and being surrounded by a sinless perfection for all of eternity, chooses instead to give up his rights that he had to being God, to being in that place, to not having to deal with us down here, and breaks into space and time so that he could demonstrate his great love for you and for I. And so because of that, by the way, that he's not like any other kind of king, no kind of king that's ever lived, in terms of him giving up his rights and his privileges and his position, then if you're a follower, if he is your king, as he is my king, and I hope he is your king this morning, then we should aspire to live lives that way as well, where we would get off the throne of our lives, so to speak, and we would lay down our lives for the good of other people that we would choose instead not to cling to our rights or worry about our rights or claim our rights so much as we would think about what's best for God and what's best for the people around us and live, live lives consistent as Christians carrying his name, living the way that he lived as well. And I can tell you, it had an impact on Pilate. It's the way he carried himself, the way that he was, even that answer. It caused Pilate in Luke's gospel to say, I find no fault in him. And that's why we're told in verse 3 that then the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. We know from Luke's gospel, he, they accused him of being a revolutionary, that he stirs up the people. They accused him of forbidding the people to pay taxes. <laughs> we studied that ourselves. We know that's not true. They accused him of uh, being someone that was a king in opposition to Caesar. Ironically, he's being accused of the very things he refused to do, which is take some kind of a political stance against Rome. So then, verse 4, Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, which is what was prophesied about him. But I think it's also something important for you and I to learn from. Jesus could have defended himself. He could have said something persuasive by which Pilate would have let him go. Not a doubt in my mind. But he knew that he was on a one-way track to the cross. And he was going to go no matter what. But I think that there's something we can pick up from here by just watching Jesus, who was innocent of all wrongdoing, and yet he did not defend himself. I'll tell you what, and I say this out of my own mouth first. I've never heard anyone defend themselves very effectively. I just never have. It almost always sounds bad when we try and defend ourselves. I would submit to you, and Jesus could have, but that he is modeling something important for us. I would encourage you to let God protect your reputation. He can do it better than you can. I guarantee you that. I've found that out from my own experience. Every time I try to defend myself, I just make things worse. And here's Jesus Christ. He says nothing. He's the one who could have said it the right way, in such a way, 
where he could have defended himself. In fact, by saying nothing, and yet with whatever composure he said nothing in, the way he acted there, we're told it was so compelling, end of verse 5, so that Pilate marveled. Who is this guy? It blew his mind. That's what that word means, that Jesus would sit there and be silent because Pilate believed that there was no fault in him. I mean, here's a guy, Pilate, who had seen man after man grovel and beg and plead for their lives time and time again, making excuses, denying accusations, trying to cover up, I didn't do it, it was that person, all these kinds of things. And then the one time that he actually believes someone, I mean, Pilate is not known in history as anything but a harsh man. He was not the kind of person who was like trying to find the good in someone. He wasn't this high moral compass person. He was a man of justice. He wanted the law to be executed in someone's life and he needed to be tough to rule that region. And so the one time he runs into someone who he thinks is innocent, here's this person, this man, Jesus Christ, who chooses not to defend himself and it blows his mind. You add to that just a little bit later on, fast forward into Matthew chapter 27 where Pilate's wife would send a message to him and say, hey, have nothing to do with this man, for I have suffered many things in a dream because of this man. And then fast forward a little later on, Mark does not record this, but that after Jesus is scourged, according to John's gospel, he's brought before the crowd one more time. They ask for him to be crucified. He has him scourged. You know, 40 minus 1, 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails would have tore out the skin and left stripes upon him. He was whipped and beaten and bruised, a bloody mess. And Pilate, attempting to save Jesus, brought him before the crowd one more time, and he said, Behold the man. In other words, look at him. Hasn't he had enough already? That was his attempt to try to get one last shot at them having sympathy on Jesus Christ. And then the crowd answered this way. They answered at that point. They said, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he had made himself the son of God. Wait a minute. That's not the accusation they brought to Pilate. They said that he was a rebel rebelling against Rome. Later on, the truth comes out. And they say he claims to be God. Therefore, John's gospel tells us, when Pilate heard the saying, he was the more afraid. <clears throat> You want to know why Pilate was afraid? Because he marveled at Jesus even before he found out that he was accused of being God. And now, instinctively and intuitively, like every single other person on this planet, they know there's something different about Jesus Christ. They just do. Trust me on that. There's no one alive who... Now, they can suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But intuitively, they know, unlike any other world leader that has ever walked the face of this planet, there is something very different about Jesus Christ. And so when you put all the gospel accounts together, <clears throat> it becomes clear that Pilate is working very hard to try to find some kind of compromise by which he can somehow release Jesus while not showing up the religious leaders. He does not want to make them look bad. It could cost him his job. So he comes up with an idea. Verse 6, it says, Now at the feast, 
he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. So at the, piece, at the feast of Passover, which this was, it was Pilate's tradition that he would release one Jewish prisoner to them to go back into society. Again, in trying to be sympathetic to the Jewish customs, because that was the accusation that they had made against Pilate, was, you know, hey, he doesn't care about us or our traditions or our culture. Now, here they are. They're celebrating the Passover, right? This was a time in which they were celebrating God delivering them from their bondage from Egypt. They were in jail, so to speak. And so what does Pilate do? He says, I'm going to create a tradition where I'm going to release, just like you all were released from your bondage in Egypt, I'm going to release one prisoner back into society that you can you know, try and rehabilitate or reassimilate back into the culture that you live in. And, and that will be some, you know, a way to uh, build a bridge between the Roman government and the Israelites, between Pontius Pilate and the people, so to speak. But what this really is for Pilate is an out, a potential out for him where he can go, all right, here's my plan. I'm going to take the worst criminal that you can possibly find, and I'm going to lay him alongside Jesus, and I'm going to have the people choose which one they want me to free up. Perfect plan, right? And let's take a look at this criminal. Verse 7, and there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Now, Barabbas, we're told in Matthew's gospel, was notorious. He was a notorious criminal. It does not mean that he was just well-known, but the word, therefore, notorious, uh, means that he was marked. Like if you were to put a stamp on a coin, that impression is left there forever. That's Barabbas. He was a marked man. He was marked for being a criminal. He was a criminal through and through. John's gospel, take note of this, John's gospel says that he was a thief. Here Mark says that he was a murderer, and Luke's gospel says he was an insurrectionist. Which one was he? All three. He was all of those things. He was a thief, he was a murderer, and he was an insurrectionist. In other words, he was actually in the business of stirring up the Jewish people against Rome. Interestingly enough, right? The very thing they're trying to pin on Jesus that was not true about Jesus. And you wonder if Pilate here is not trying to hip, um, expose their hypocrisy by having them choose between Jesus and Barabbas when Barabbas actually was this uh, rebel, so to speak, and Jesus most certainly nowhere near the kind of rebel that Barabbas was. So it seems to me from the text that Pilate is actually pretty clever here. He has thought this through. He's going to give them two people to choose from, and it's a slam dunk, right? It's an obvious slam dunk. It's Barabbas and Jesus. You got one that's a notorious criminal. You got the other who had preached among the people goodwill. He had healed others, or at least Pilate no doubt had heard rumors that he had. He was immensely popular. This will be an easy slam dunk, right? Well then, verse 8, the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them in releasing a prisoner at the feast. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Now that's interesting to me that Pilate knew 
he saw right through the religious leaders. Well, here's part of the reason why. Do you really expect me to think that you brought him before me because he's a threat to Rome? What do the religious leaders care about that? So he's seeing right through that already. And he sees that there's envy at the heart of this, which is, again, fascinating that Pilate sees envy. Envious of what? From Pilate's perspective, what would they have to be envious of? He was beaten the night before. He had been up all night, presumably. I mean, he is a mess, a bloodied mess. He's got no kingdom that anyone knows of, even though they called him a king. No soldiers are there for his rescue. There's no one standing by his side. He's got no attorney. He's got no money. He's got no stuff. What is there to be envious of? And yet Pilate still perceived from the whatever, how long he's known Jesus, that the religious leaders were envious of him. Incredible the impact that Jesus had on Pilate just in the short amount of time that he was with him. Envy is a killer both in a figurative kind of way as it applies to this text but literally envy please be careful of envy because envy will get you just like it did the religious leaders you look at James chapter 3 and there's two verses verses I think 14 and 16 where envy is closely connected to self-seeking sort of like synonymous as we become too self-seeking, we set ourselves up to become envious. And that is a road you can go down that can destroy people. It can consume people. It did the religious leaders. They were consumed with envy over Jesus from the beginning. You remember way back in Mark chapter 3? They set up this plan to see if they could trick Jesus. They put a man in a synagogue on the day of the Sabbath with a withered hand to see if Jesus would cure him on the Sabbath, which God can cure people on the Sabbath, by the way. <laughs> That's not against any law. It was against their traditions that they had come up with, not against God's law, that God is bound by any rule of man. But they did. They set this up to see if he would come into the synagogue and heal this man on the Sabbath which should have, by the way, told them two things about Jesus that should have led them on the path to beginning to believe that he was who he said he was. Number one, it should have told them that Jesus would, as he did, identify the person in the room with the greatest need. By the way, Jesus did that. And they knew he would. Think about the character that they knew that he had, that he would identify this man who was the man with the greatest need in a room, the man with the withered hand, and that he would seek to minister to him. They counted on that. Secondly, they counted on the fact that he would have the power to heal him. They banked on the fact that he would have the power to heal him. That was the trap. A power that they did not have. A power that should have demonstrated to them that he was greater than they were. And that they should have understood then that those implications would have driven them to having faith in Christ. But instead it drove them to envy and wanting to kill him way back from the very beginning of his public ministry. And Pilate is no rookie politician. He saw right through their manipulation. He knew that Jesus was innocent. But the longer that it takes him to make a decision, and this is true for every person in life, the longer that it took him to make a decision, the longer and harder 
that it, took, that it took him, the harder it became for him to stand up for what was right. The longer someone takes to make a decision for Jesus, the harder it becomes to make a decision for Jesus. He's caught here, Pilate is, in a potentially politically volatile situation. Matthew's gospel tells us that a tumult or a riot was about to rise at that moment in time as Pilate is conversing with the mob. And so he's already, Pilate, so to speak, has two strikes against himself because of the way that he has dealt with the Israelite people in the past. He cannot resort to violence in order to control this angry mob. He can't let things get out of hand because that'd be three strikes and you're out and he's probably going to lose his job. And so he's desperate to find a way to wiggle out of this situation. But I don't think it occurred to Pilate for one second that his plan wouldn't work. How could it possibly not work? Jesus and Barabbas, of course, still choose Jesus, right? But, verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Isn't that interesting? Bible teachers aren't all in agreement as to whether this is the same group of people that were there on the triumphal entry when the multitudes greeted him and welcomed him in as the Messiah. But I think no doubt some of them have to be. And oh how they so quickly changed. Boy, the crowd can be so fickle, can't they? How public opinion can change about someone like that. And why? It says because the religious leaders, the chief priests, stirred them up. And I'm not going to get on a soapbox, but you just think about this for a second. You take any social issue of this day, you take any social issue, and where even maybe the majority is now voting this way about something, 10, 20 years ago, they were not voting that way, and they've changed their mind because a few people have stirred up the multitudes. So don't be impacted by the crowd moving because the crowd can be moved by a few people. It was happening even in Jesus' day. They're hailing him as Messiah, and a few days later, they're shouting out to crucify him. Are you kidding? That's how quickly a crowd can change their mind by the influence of just a few small people pulling some strings behind the scenes. But Pilate answered and said to them, again, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Which is the question that you, if you haven't already asked yourself, you have to ask yourself this morning. It's the question that every human being has to ask of themselves in their lifetime. It is the one question that has to be answered. What do you do with Jesus? What am I supposed to do with Jesus? That's what Pilate asks this crowd. Now, as a side note, though, they had already chosen Barabbas, right? He said Barabbas. That was the majority. They wanted Barabbas. So why is he saying, what do you want me to do with Jesus? You suppose that Pilate would have released Jesus also? He wanted to. If they had said, yeah, let him go. Let him go also. We want Barabbas first, but if you'll give us Jesus too, sounds good to me. I suppose he would have, or else he would have just said, okay, you choose Barabbas, it's over. Jesus, you're going to the cross. Yet he says, what do you want me to do with him? So they cried out again, crucify him. 
wait a minute, this never had anything to do with you picking who dies, like some bad reality TV show and you watch it, you, you don't get a vote in that, you get to pick who gets released, not what happens to the one who doesn't. But this, came, this became about who was gonna die. This became about them getting rid of Jesus Christ. And that's what they're trying to do. Well, then Pilate said to them, verse 14, why? What evil has he done? And notice they don't answer the question. But they cried all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, and then look what it says, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had him scourged to be crucified. Let me close with looking at a couple characters here in this story for just a few minutes so we can make some observations for our purposes this morning. First is Barabbas. Very prominent in this story, but not in many other stories. But he is very much involved in this scene. Barabbas' name means son of a father. What does that mean? That means he's a son of a father. Just like every other person that ever lived. He's not son of the father, which is who Jesus was. He's son of a father. Like all of us, whether you were close with your father growing up, or you still are now, or you never even knew him, we are all the same in that sense. We are just like Barabbas. You say, well, no, I'm nothing like Barabbas. <laughs> Barabbas was a thief and a murderer and an insurrectionist. Well, let's take those three things real quick. Barabbas was a thief. And you say, well, okay, maybe I stole a pack of gum when I was a kid at the grocery store. Or, you know, when I first got married, we fudged the numbers on our taxes, but we made up for that later on, or I don't know, whatever. Punched the time clock in the wrong way. Or maybe you don't think you've ever stolen anything. You know, the Bible says that if you look upon a neighbor's possession and you want for something for yourself that God does not want for you, it's called coveting. It's a form of stealing, of taking what is not belonging to you, what God hasn't given to you. And it's really the same kind of thing. The Bible says that if you lust after another person or for a thing, that which does not belong to you, when you belong to someone else, it's in the same category. You're taking something that does not belong to you. You're guilty of stealing, just like Barabbas. But you say, well, I've never murdered anyone before. That's true, probably. Except that the Bible says that if you've ever had deep down just anger and hatred towards someone, Jesus said that you've committed murder in your heart by having that kind of anger towards someone else. One pastor I know said that if you have gossip and slandered someone behind their back, as I know I have before, that I have killed their character to someone else and I'm guilty of the same. But you say, well, I'm not a thief and I'm not a murderer. All right, but you're definitely an insurrectionist. You have rebelled from the government. You say, what do you mean? You never burnt a flag or 
anything like that. I've never started an uprising. I'm not talking about the government of the United States of America. I'm talking about the governing body over your life, God Almighty. The second that you realize that you are accountable to a creator, then you know that you have rebelled from God, right? We all have. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled from God, and so we're all guilty before God in that sense. No different than Barabbas. Barabbas, just think about it. That morning, as you know, the sunlight starts to creep into his prison cell, and he hears the guards coming. I mean, he's thinking, oh, here it comes. This is going to be a torturous day, and it's going to end in death, and then I am going to stand accountable before God. And the key goes in the hole, and it opens up the gate, and they say, Barabbas, you're released. Another man is going to die in your place. And although Barabbas can literally say, Jesus died for me, every single person here has just seen a wonderful, beautiful picture of how we're all Barabbas, and Jesus took our place what would be more than just hanging on a cross, but eternal separation from God Almighty. Barabbas gives us that picture. You and me, we're that person. We're that Barabbas. We're that thief, that murderer, that rebel, that sinner that Jesus took the place of. He took the death so that we wouldn't have to. One of the things that's interesting about the story of Barabbas is we don't know what his reaction was to this. You know, in the movies, you kind of see he's just overwhelmed, but that's not in the text. So we don't know what Barabbas thought about Jesus dying in his place. Who knows? Maybe we'll never know. Maybe Barabbas got saved because of it. But it's unstated on purpose. The Holy Spirit does not tell us, and it leaves us to fill in the gap and decide how will we respond in gratitude to the fact that he stood in our stead, that he took our place. Will we continue to live our lives, you know, as thieves and as murderers, covetousness, uh, selfishness, not asking God what he thinks, doing things our own way? Or will we, just like our king, will we model our lives after his model that he set before us in laying aside our rights and our privileges and living for others instead? in getting off the throne of our lives so that we don't think we're in charge anymore and we give him that authority and we choose to live for him instead. And then finally, I want to look at Pilate as well. Because Pilate, speaking of someone who refused to really get off the throne here in this particular instance, and yet somehow he wants you to think he did, because if you know this, the story, if you remember the story, how it ends, that after Pilate um, puts Jesus before the crowd and the crowd decides they want Jesus crucified, Pilate ceremoniously washes his hands before the crowd as if to say, this is not on me, it's on you all. His blood is on your hands, it's not on mine. That's what Pilate is trying to say. And yet, he could not say that. Pilate was the one person in this predicament. Look, I'll tell you about Pilate. I kind of, in some ways, I feel for Pilate 
because he's stuck in between seemingly a very, very difficult choice. But that doesn't mean that he handled it right. He was wrong. He didn't stand up for what was right. He did what was politically expedient. But he thinks he did nothing. He thinks by washing his hands, he's going to be able to pin this on everyone else. But he cannot do that. He was the one responsible. And he also is a picture of you and I as well. He's a picture of every single person, whoever lives, that has to make a choice about Jesus Christ, and no one can wash their hands of Jesus Christ. Pilate tries to strike a stance of neutrality as it relates to Jesus Christ. He tries to say, well, you're the ones that decided to put him to death, not me. I want nothing to do with this. But Jesus didn't allow room for you to take that stance. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. So you have to decide whether he's right or he's not. And sometimes because of the crowd, just as Pilate was, and as the crowd continues to move more and more and more away from Jesus Christ in this country, you go back about 100 years, you can see the corporations let people off work early on Wednesday nights so that they could get to midweek service. How far are we from God today? You can't even talk about God at work anymore. It's unpopular to be a, you know, radical Christian these days, sold out for Jesus Christ. You can't let the crowd sway you. You can't let the crowd sway you to the point where you make no stance. You cannot make the stance of being neutral as it relates to Jesus. He did not leave you room for that option. <clears throat> Listen, a neutral stance is to say this. A neutral stance is to say, I'm not going to make a decision about Jesus Christ. That is a decision. No decision is a decision for Jesus Christ. Pilate tried to wash his hands of Jesus Christ, and you cannot wash your hands. The blood of Jesus Christ is on Pilate as much as it is every single person who's ever sinned before. He had to go to the cross in order to pay for the price for the sins of humanity. And no one is allowed to say, not my problem. So, as we wrap this morning, and we'll have the worship team come on up at this point and close us in a couple songs. And I want to invite you today, if you're here this morning, and maybe you're like a lot of people I know who think that it's okay to postpone this decision or to not necessarily have to stand up and make a claim to Jesus Christ or that it doesn't apply to you or you somehow can wash your hands of Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible includes you with the list of people that have sinned and fallen short of his glory, and that's why he sent his son to the cross, to take our place. He took our place. Now I want to invite you, there's going to be men and women up here this morning, if you want to come forward and pray to be forgiven of your sins, to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, recognizing that he went to the cross, the sacrifice on your behalf, it's that simple. It's not about joining this church right here. It's not about a religion or a denomination. It's about recognizing you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that he died, he rose again, as we're going to see in the next couple weeks, that he is God and he alone can pay the price 
for your sins. If that's you this morning and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I'd invite you after we're done with the last two worship songs, pray about it as you're there. God is tugging on your heart. Even now, you know who you are. Come forward after the worship and we'll pray with you to receive Christ and you'll be a new creation and the Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you and you'll never be the same again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this wonderful promise and this beautiful picture, Lord, of the substitutionary death. Lord, in having your son Jesus, our God, go to the cross instead of us die in our place to take sin he who knew no sin of ours upon himself we thank you for that God and we thank you that this never gets old it never gets old hearing about what you did and this picture you presented for us the characters involved Jesus just emerges and shines every time Lord, what a wonderful thing for us to rejoice and celebrate in again this morning. No matter what anyone is going through this morning, Lord, we can just throw all of that aside right now and we can just be focused on the fact that Christ died for us. Your son took our place. He took our place. It's the best news. It trumps all the bad news of this world. And Lord, also for those that don't already know you, in a personal way. They haven't made a commitment to you. They haven't gone all in. They're sort of on the sidelines trying to be neutral in this. And Lord, if you're tugging on their heart right now, then they know you are. And Lord, we pray that you'd give them the courage to stand at their feet afterwards and walk up to the front and be prayed for. Lord, we know that when that happens, that there's a celebration in heaven. And everyone here is praying and rooting for them as well. We all did it at one point. So, Lord, we pray for the courage for them, beckon them by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.